Recovery Elevator, episode 276. I don't have to be that person anymore. And I can be a sensitive person. I can, I can, and I can show those, that side of me. And I don't have to blow up over small things anymore because I'm able to respond rather than react. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Brian. He's 45 years old from Greenville, South Carolina, and he took his last drink on September 18th, 2019. In his interview, he talks about he was one of the most self-aware alcoholics. Awareness, there's that word again. The more I do this work, the more I deepen on this journey, I'm convinced that with awareness alone, we can ditch the booze. Yo, congratulations to Luke S. for just hitting 1,000 alcohol-free days. Nice job, my man. Thank you so much for listening. Ditching the booze, the what, the why, and the how, we had over 225 people register for this intro accountability course, and we had a lot of people ask, hey, is this course going to be offered again? And the answer to that is yes. We'll be offering this intro to sobriety course again on Tuesday, August 4th, and then again on Tuesday, November 3rd. Now, if you are in the time zones of Europe or Australia and New Zealand, we do record the webinars and you can watch them the next day. We have groups and team leaders set up for those time zones as well. Plus, I'm working on an AF201 course for those of you who aren't newbies to this alcohol-free life, and I'm hoping to get that course scheduled to launch either late July or early August, so stay tuned. And again, these courses are all included with Cafe RE membership. Okay, let's get started. What do we have to cover today? Let me, let me, um, let me check my notes real quick. Alcohol is still shit. Um, yeah, still need connection, accountability, burn the ships. Covered that in the last 275 episodes. Um, yeah, that about that about wraps it. Uh, oh no, wait a second. Yeah, let's uh, let's chat about the elephant in the room, which would be the title of this episode, end of season one. Okay, so today we're going to cover some exciting changes with the Recovery Elevator podcast. We're also going to cover how far we've come, and next week, before handing off the podcast to a new, highly talented voice, I'm going to talk about where I envision where this movement that you're a part of is going. Okay, end of season one. It's hard for me to say. After 276 straight Mondays, over five years straight of podcasting, I'm taking a break. Again, I'm going to be back next week to introduce the new voice who is stepping in for me while I'm on repose. But after that, I'm going to chill out for a while. And what will I be doing on this break? Well, I hope to take a break. And that's hard for me to do, but I'm going to do my best to pull up a lawn chair next to a pool, next to a beach, and take a break. I'd also like to attend a couple silent meditation retreats, other wellness retreats, and take some time to plan the future for Recovery Elevator, the podcast, Cafe RE, our meetups, our events, our live events. I imagine having a big vision board, a couple notepads, some pens, some journaling sessions, and and really dedicate time to where this movement is going. I also plan working on the RE YouTube channel. Now, the best way to stay connected with me while I'm on this break, this repose, this sabbatical, this timeout, is to follow me on the Recovery Elevator Instagram channel, which is basically just me and Ben watching sunsets. So, here we go. Let's do this. All right. First off, let me give you, the listener, a massive thank you. I selfishly started working on this podcast to create accountability In October of 2014, when I took a 6,000-mile road trip, deciding if I should mention to the world that I have a drinking problem or not. And you know the answer that I decided I did. I'm glad I did. It's the best decision I've ever made. And since then, I've been met with nothing but unconditional love and support at every step of the way. 
Sure, there's been a couple naysayers along the way, but that's all part of it, and I welcome that too. You guys, you all, have helped me make it 2,076 days without a drop of alcohol. How incredible is that? Thank you so much again. There's not a chance I could have made it this far without you. You all have helped me save, according to the Recovery Elevator Sobriety Tracker app, $49,806, and we're just going to round that up to a smooth 50K, and you guys have blocked the consumption of 12,451.65 beverages filled with total shit, and those are things that you've helped me stay away from. However, much more importantly, you've helped me love again. Most importantly, love myself. Because without that internal connection, there's the word connection, that external love doesn't happen. You've given me a euphoric heart glow that I'm feeling right now. I kid you not. In my heart area, that heart region in the center of my chest, I feel as if I've taken a dose of MDMA. It's euphoric. I'm feeling it right now. And I'll let you know, I didn't take a dose of MDMA. That's where this journey can take you to a euphoric heart glow. It is an open heart. You helped me obtain something extraordinarily special, something which is of holy grail status in my book, and that is enough. You've helped me realize I don't need to accomplish any more, make any more money, or modify my external world anymore to be happy or whole because I already have enough. You've shown me that a sunrise and sunset is all that is needed for internal wholeness. And the only way to double that happiness is by sharing it with someone else. So thank you. I'm not sure if I'd even be here right now if it weren't for you, the listener. And hey, we've built something cool here. There's a saying that goes, it's the teacher and the student that make the teaching. You all are all part of this more than you know. Let's take a look at what we've built here. The podcast has been downloaded at this moment 4,665,110 times at an average of 25,000 downloads per episode. Just to let you know, the average podcast episode, according to an article in the USA Today, gets about 185 downloads per episode. That puts us in the 95th percentile of all podcasts out there. It's been downloaded in all 50 states and over 160 countries. Holy shit. Again, it's the teacher and the student that make the teaching. And most of the time, I'm the student on the podcast. I've learned so much from the courageous interviewees who come on the show only to help those who are struggling with alcohol. You all have told me what topics you'd like me to cover. You all said, hey, can we start an accountability group on Facebook? You said, hey, let's do a meetup. Hey, why not do a sober travel trip? You've helped me steer and guide this project. Let's talk about Cafe RE for a second. We've had over 5,000 people sign up for Cafe RE. And some of those who signed up over three years ago are still in Cafe RE and have over three years alcohol-free. Cool bananas. We've had over 400 people attend recovery elevator meetups, events, and retreats. If you add up all the time we have away from alcohol, it's 78,000 light years. Kidding. That, that, that would actually be a tough stat to pull up, and light years is a distance as well as a time. We've done TEDx talks, we've been on TV, interviewed on other podcasts and media outlets. We've had meetups in 11 countries. We've told social media that we're done with alcohol, that we're graciously and ungraciously bowing out. We've faced life and all of its challenges without alcohol. We've discovered a life that no longer requires alcohol. And if you're not there yet, and I know many of you are new to this journey in alcohol-free life, stick with it it will come, including that heart glow. We've shattered the stigma. How do I know that? Well, first off, we create the stigma. I know that sounds strange, but it's the person struggling with alcohol who wants to quit drinking so badly, but also doesn't want to give up their best friend and most effective coping strategy who creates 95% of the stigma. Sit with that statement for a second. And that's great news overall, 
because we can't control others, but we can control ourselves. So me and you, we've ruined alcohol for heaps of people out there. Loads, shit tons. We've given countless the courage to attend their very first AA meeting, to do their very first meditation, first yoga class, first burning of the ships. We've said countless lame recovery cliches. We've done a lot of connecting. We've listened to the body, and we've gone where it wants us to go. We've created space from the thinking mind, and we've even had the courage to do the opposite of what the thinking mind has told us. That right there in itself is huge. We've changed our fuel sources from the external to the internal world. We've embraced Third Eye Blind, and we've seen them live in concert at a meetup. We've raised our own levels of consciousness while raising others at the same time. Cool how that works. We've repaired damaged relationships, corrected past negligible behavior, and we started focusing on our strengths opposed to our defects of character. Instead of asking what's the worst that can happen, we started to ask, hey, what's the best that can happen? We're starting to see how an alcohol-free life is the opportunity of a lifetime. We've began to approach life out of love, opposed to the low vibrational frequency of fear. We've become entirely new people. One could even say we've evolved into a new species. And here's the cool part. We're all doing this together. Okay, you guys, before we hear from Brian and Cafe RE, I'm wondering if you can help me with something. In the back of my mind while doing this podcast, I personally wanted to reach 1,000 reviews in iTunes or your podcast media player, but more specifically in iTunes. Right now, I'm at 975 reviews, and I'd like to hit 1,000 before passing this off to the new talented voice, which I know you guys are going to love. So please, if you like this podcast, you find it beneficial on your journey, please subscribe and leave a review. I would absolutely love to get to a thousand before passing this off. Okay. So before we hear from Brian, let's hear from my favorite resource on this journey, Cafe RE. When departing from alcohol, here are the two main keys to success. You need a supportive, loving community, and you have to create accountability with others who have the same goal in mind. Whether you want to ditch the booze for a month, a year, or are simply sober curious, you'll get both of these in Cafe RE. These groups are unsearchable on Facebook. Who is in the group and what is said can only be seen by members. You get 24-7 access to a group full of others whose priority it is to live an alcohol-free life. These groups are capped at under 400 members to ensure quality connection. In Cafe RE, you'll find that quitting drinking can be fun. For $19 a month, you get access to the community, get paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, online discussions, attend in-person meetups, participate in book club, movie club, and more. You'll also get discounts to retreats and sober travel trips. 15% of monthly fees goes towards our service project where we work with a nonprofit helping those who have been affected by addiction. And another portion goes to the in-person meetups. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Brian, how are you? I'm doing great, Paul. How are you doing today? Hey, Brian, I'm great. Thanks for asking, my man. Let's get right into this. When was your last drink? September 18th of 2019. All right. If my math is correct, that's 213 days. Well, you guys, listeners, he told me 213 days before we hit record, but that is incredible, Brian. Fantastic stuff. How does it feel? It feels absolutely amazing, to be honest, um, you know, from such a, a long and distinguished drinking career um, to be sober and clear headed and be able to tackle life on life's terms, right, is is a blessing for me. Yeah, and before we hit record, Brian said it's not his first rodeo, it's not his first attempt, so I'm excited to hear about your journey and share it with one of the most supportive, courageous, one of the most badass audiences out there. You ready to do this, Brian? Yeah, let's rock. Let's do it, my man. Okay, give listeners a little background about yourself, where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun, Brian? Okay. Yeah, well, I am 45 years old. I currently live just outside of Greenville, South Carolina in a small town called Easley. I am married and I have two children. In fact, my daughter just turned 12 on Wednesday and my son will be nine in June. 
I'm originally from Maryland, uh, Southern Maryland to, to be exact, about 45 minutes south of Washington, D.C. And I went to college up in Baltimore after I was in the military for several years. I was in the Army and then came back and lived in Baltimore for 17 years. We then moved down to North Carolina and then down to South Carolina, so a little bit, uh, a little bit further south on the East Coast. For what I like to do for fun is I like to golf. Uh, in the wintertime, if I can, I like to get out skiing or snowboarding, but that's kind of hard in South Carolina. And, uh, you know, I also like to record, do podcasts. I do PA announcing. Um, I like to barbecue, you know, make some pulled pork and ribs and brisket. So uh, I like to just keep myself busy. And let me guess, for your profession, you add the voiceover tracks to movie previews. I should, shouldn't I? I'm trying to, trying to break into that. I actually... Uh, went to college, got my undergraduate degree and my master's degree in business. I was a, a corporate executive running a business line for a publicly traded company here in Greenville. But part of my story is I no longer have that job and it was related to my drinkings. You know, business has always been a background for me and I enjoy business. So I'm hoping that I can somehow fold in my recovery and my ability to, you know, get on a microphone and sound pretty decent. <laughs> with with my business background and help people out and be able to make a living off of it. Yeah, I didn't think it was possible for myself, but that's what I'm doing with my voice. But listeners, do you hear his voice? This this is incredible. Let's let's try something, Brian. I am going to I'm going to do my best Brian impersonation and talk about the journey for like 10 seconds. Ready? Here we go. Imagine, you know, it comes on the screen like the lions roaring and I go, "Ladies and gentlemen, premiering on April 16th, The Life of Brian and his challenges, his triumphs with alcohol. Alcohol. All right, that's impromptu. What you got, Brian? You're up. Ladies and gentlemen, on April 16th, coming into the theaters near you, it is The Life of Brian. I think <laughs> I'm I think I should step aside right now. That that was incredible. <laughs> yeah. Oh wow, I love it. Okay. It's so much fun. Like the first five minutes of these interviews can go in so many different directions. We both did impersonations for uh an alcohol-free trailer. That was good stuff. All right, Brian, give listeners. A little background with your drinking. When did you first recognize it was a problem? Did you attempt to moderate or make changes in your life at that moment? Did you have any rock bottom moments? Is this your first time trying to quit drinking? We already know that answer is no. I'm excited to hear your story, Brian. Take it away, buddy. All right. Thanks. Yeah. So I was a late bloomer as far as when I first started drinking. It was actually about a month away from graduating from high school was the first time I got drunk. And I say I, I drank and got drunk the first time because that's basically been a theme and it was a theme of my of my drinking. Very, very early on it was I want to get inebriated and and that's you know, it was never just to, hey, let me have a glass of wine with dinner. It was let me have several bottles so I can feel really good. And from the start, you know, I, I basically drank to intoxication. And after I graduated from high school, went to college at University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and joined a fraternity, played rugby. Uh, both of those organizations obviously are heavy, you know, I guess in the concept of partying and drinking. Left for the military, and I'll say that it, it was kind of up and down. It wasn't necessarily that immediately I had a problem, um, but I was always drinking to intoxication. So in the military, there's some time that you can't even even drink sodas for a while when you're in boot camp and things like that. But once I got into the military, I was 18 years old and I was with a bunch of other guys that were older. So I would generally drink on the way to clubs. I was with the 101st Airborne Division and we would go down to Nashville, Tennessee, and I would drink on the way to clubs. And then allegedly I was supposed to be sober enough to drive home, but I always seemed to find ways to drink more while I was at the club. And one of those guys would normally have to be the responsible one. After I got out of the military, went back to UMBC. Wait, wait, went, Brian, real quick. I, I got a DUI once when I was supposed to be the designated driver. So I know a lot of people out there are like nodding their head, be like, yep, I was supposed to be the DD. Uh, didn't quite work out. All right, keep going. Yeah, and you know what's uh, funny about that, just uh, aside on that, is that I would still be the DD later in my in my career because I could handle my alcohol better than most people. So even though I wouldn't not drink, I was like, no, no, I'll be designated driver because I'm okay after 12 beers. <laughs> so many layers to this. All right, keep going. That's it was. So I went back to University of Maryland, Baltimore County uh, in the spring of 1997 and went for another two years until the Board of Regents recommended that I take some time off. 
They did that because my last semester's GPA was 0.0, kind of like uh, Bluto from Animal House. Quick question. How do, you, how do you pull that off? I have some ideas, but I want to hear it from you. So I went to class the very first week and got all of the syllabus and then basically just sat out on the quad at the center of campus and waited for other people to get out of class the rest of the semester. And then I was, you know, just looking for somebody to drink with or do bong hits with. But, so, I'm, but I'm sure you had a position with the fraternity and you played a lot of rugby. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was doing <laughs> a lot of activities and a whole lot of drinking. Um, yeah, you're still so, air quotes going to college. <laughs> yeah, I was. And by that time, my fraternity had renamed. So each semester we would give awards, you know, most athletic and most academic. But then there was also the biggest party award. And I had won it so many times in a row, they disqualified me from being able to win it and just named it the Brian Atkins Memorial uh, Biggest Party Award. All right, listeners, we got a good one. You might need to ditch the booze if a fraternity has an award named after you. Wow. Love it, Brian. Yeah, I almost saved that until the end because I know that you always ask uh, at the end. Yeah, so. no, I, I had to throw that one out. All right, all right, keep going. So you're 45. You're in. You're you're, right, you're 45 now. Um, did, did the drinking really progress in your 20s, 30s, or, or 40s? Uh, yeah, like it, there was there were some waves to it. So it really picked up in my 20s after I failed out of college. I started bartending and doing some other jobs around and. Uh, bartending was really the one that I gravitated towards because you can make, you can make plenty of money doing that. And, you know, it's a haven, as you well know, from owning a bar, it's a haven for people that have drinking problems. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's not frowned upon normally to have some drinks while you're on, on job, on the job. And then when you're closing up and cleaning, that's when you just slam a bunch of drinks. Oh yeah. Uh, So that's when it really picked up and I, it was 1999 and uh, I was in a relationship at the time, and then I was at I was working at UPS also during the day, and I had to call out several times in a row just because I had you know drank way too much the night before. And then there were some other events that unfolded with with my relationship at the time, and I realized I needed to quit drinking. And this is in your and late twenties. This is in my mid twenties. I was twenty four, twenty five years old, so that would have been nineteen ninety nine. And I said, "Wow, I have a problem right now." And I was, I was sober. I want to say for about eight months, I was sober from alcohol. Um, I was living with a friend of mine and we were big fans of marijuana. So I was smoking a lot of pot and, but just wasn't drinking. And, but then eight months later started drinking again. And I've, I've quit a couple other times through there. One time was back in 2004. I just ended a long-term relationship with that same person from 1999 moved in by myself and I'd never lived by myself before. I always lived in with my parents or in dorms, apartments with people, the barracks in the military. This was the first time I physically lived by myself and I didn't know what to do with myself. I I was at a place that arguably I didn't really get to until these last seven months where I was very comfortable in my own skin, comfortable with myself. And I spent every single night, I would get home from work and go straight to a bar allegedly in my mind, I would say, well, I need to go get something to eat. So I'd go down there for dinner, but I, but I would close the bar out every single night. And that for the entire summer of 2004. And towards the end of that summer, I had one blackout drink where I went back to my ex fiance's house. She was not there. I don't remember a whole lot of it. Apparently I did break the window. It used to be our house. We owned it together, but I had since basically refinanced my name out of it. I somehow broke a window. And I also remember very vividly sitting on the back deck talking to someone, but apparently there was nobody there. Well, we probably talking to the guy who asked you why you broke a window. (laughs) It was probably my multiple personality that I was sitting there talking to the sober guy and the drunk guy. And they're having a conversation. And that, that next day I said, I need to quit again. And I did. And I quit for about another seven months, but then got back to it. Shortly thereafter, I met my now wife and her and I began dating and I was using other, um, you know, I was cross addicted basically. So I was using other drugs and I found myself in jail in 2007, uh, the summer of 2007, I got 60 days in jail for possession, lost my job. And in the midst of there, I was fortunate to get weekends. They, they gave me weekends cause I was employed when they sentenced hmm. me. Okay. 
but I but I lost my job. So I was going down in spurts just to kind of knock out the time. And in the midst of there, my now wife got pregnant with our daughter, the one that just turned 12 years old. And that was a big wake up call for me again, because I was sitting there in traffic heading to basically Ocean City, Maryland. Everybody else is going to the beach. They have their rafts, they have their coolers and all that stuff. And I have a small grocery bag that has a change of clothes in it because I'm getting ready to go spend a weekend in jail. And I did that that entire summer. Wow. And in that process, realizing that I was going to be a father, uh, it was a it was a wake up call for a while. We always I always said that my daughter kind of saved my life at that particular point. And Brian, you said yeah. a wake up call for a while. I imagine the progression did what it did and it progressed even more. It did. It did. So, I mean, you know, when she when she was born, that that takes a lot of your time and there is a lot of devotion and I wanted to be a father and. I was still going out on the weekends, especially during football season, being, you know, in Baltimore. I was going to Ravens games a lot and big Baltimore Ravens fan uh, going out to the bars and watching the games. And during baseball season, we had the Orioles and we would drink away our woes back then because they were terrible. Uh, but I was but it was manageable. Right. Every once in a while I get I get a little out of hand. But throughout that time, shortly after she was born, that 2007 to 2012 period, the company that I was working for about. I, I had several different run-ins that I had to be written up or talked to because there would be a work function and Brian would just drink too much. One time we were at a happy hour and for whatever reason I pulled my pants down and, you know, I was wearing boxer shorts, but, you know, I was making crude remarks and uh, had to be talked to about that. Um, There's another instance where I left a, an out-of-town co-worker by himself in the middle of the city uh, because I ditched out on a cab payment and... It's Baltimore. You know, here's a guy from Texas that doesn't know where he's at. And I was I, I was basically blacked out drunk because I don't remember a whole lot of it. Yeah. So it was it was that was one of those times where I'm like, OK, I'm just going to take it easy. So I start taking it easy over time. Long story short, we find ourselves now in 2020. And last year, uh, again, I had been talked to several times at my previous company about you know my drinking. And in September, we went on an executive retreat. Several high level executives were there, including myself and on my way down, we were going to Lake Oconee down in Georgia. It's a beautiful lake. Uh, a lot of the college football coaches, including Nick Saban, have houses on this place. And we were at the Ritz-Carlton. It's an executive retreat. Sure. The whole drive down there, which is about two hours, I kept just telling myself, you know what? Don't even drink this time. You don't need to drink. This is business. You're going to go play golf. Just just don't need to drink. So you've got and this incredibly dialed-in plan for two hour, on the two-hour drive. You're getting it dialed in. You're yeah. like, Brian, we're not going to drink. And a little, little foreshadowing here. What happens next? Yeah, well, as you can imagine, it didn't go as I had planned. Uh, we had our meeting. We arrived and had a meeting. We had a meeting for several hours. And I had arranged for my vendor who has a boat on the lake to take us out on the boat. And so we all said, okay, meeting's over. Let's go back to our room and change. We're going to go out on a boat. We'll meet down at this bar uh, where the dock is. And so we went down. And when I got to the bar, it was like this instinctual, I didn't even think about it, ordered a double vodka and tonic. Now, the thing is, I shouldn't have ordered liquor, but I, you know, even ordering a beer, it was instinctual. Nothing in my head said, remember your two hour conversation with yourself. You shouldn't have anything. And I proceeded for two days basically to to be intoxicated at a work function in meetings at golf, embarrassing myself, making crude remarks, talking down to our chief financial officer, you know, brand new chief financial officer that I had just met. And I was just incredibly embarrassed, had to be talked to while I was there from my boss, a vice president, that I needed to stop drinking. And uh, long story short, I got written up from that. And that was September uh, 9th through 11th, I think, or 10th through the 12th, something like that. And the very next week, I had a cousin come in from out of town. We went out to dinner and I had a beer and a half. And that was my last alcoholic beverage. Wow. Okay. So the writing has been on the wall, I think since 1999, when you had eight months off. And then in 2004, you started living by yourself. And at the end of that summer, 2004, you decided to quit. You got another seven months. And then later on in life, you, you reached a moment where you decided, you know what, we just need to take it easy. And, and actually, let's back it up for a bit right there in that whole take it easy phase. When was that in your life? It sounds like late 2010s somewhere. And how did that take it easy phase go for you? It was it was basically around 2000, late 2007, 2008, because I finished my jail time in 2007 in the first week of September and then became employed at, at a new company because I was unemployed for about four months. 
in October of 2007. My daughter was born April of 2008. And during that time, it was that was my quote unquote, take it easy phase. But again, I, I had, you know, I had to be written up at work uh, a couple times because of drinking at company events that alcohol was there. Like I said, happy hours or a Christmas party, this and that. But as as with most of you know the stories that I've heard from your podcast and others that I speak to in recovery, you know we're the ones that say, hey, does anybody want to drink? I'll go up and get them. And then you go up and get everybody one round. But I was doing one or two shots while I was up there at the same time. Yeah. You know, just because a little bit more. Yeah. We just what had is- 312 people nod their head, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, I know that I'm not alone on that. And that's just one of those things where, or I would order two drinks when the waitress came around. Cause I know that I would drink it so fast. Uh, that first one that I would need a second one because she wouldn't be back in time. Now, Brian, let's drill into this last drink. You said you were at dinner with your cousin and you just had a last drink, right? I did. Yeah. It's a cousin that lives up in Virginia and he was down on business here in Greenville. And it, we, we met, met out at a local restaurant and, you know, it was like, Hey, I'm at that point I had had my, my, you know, mess up the week prior to that. And then I'd been just been written up the day before or so. So in my mind, it's swirling like Brian, yeah, something needs to change here. But we were going out to a place that has like their own craft beer and stuff. And I thought, okay, well, I'll, you know, I'll just, I'll have a beer. And I had one and then I ordered a second one. But the first one didn't taste very good, and the second one wasn't tasted much better. Plus, we were done with dinner, and in my mind, I thought, this, is, this has to change. This, is, this isn't what I want anymore. So, Brian, I want to run something by it and see if this jives with you. Okay, so the last two beers you had on September 18th didn't quite taste right, and it could have been the microbrewery, the restaurant, just wasn't their best beer, right? But I've heard this before, and on my last drink, I dumped it out. I drank half of it. It just didn't taste good. It didn't taste right. And I did an episode, probably 10 or 12 episodes called Alcohol Has Been Ruined For Me. And what that means, it's the tipping point when the energy around your alcohol-free life, that goal, your desire that you're putting out there into the field is greater than the energy around the addiction. And I thought, Brian, everybody's story is different, but I thought we were going to get to some um, somewhat catastrophic uh, moment, right? Some... Uh, you like a back. What is the word for it? I'm, I'm spacing it right now, Brian. I thought we were gonna have like this fiery rock bottom moment. That's the word, rock bottom. I don't know why I forgot that, but we didn't. We had this moment where you're out to dinner with your cousin. You're looking at the beer or you're drinking the beer, and you said, "You know what? Something has to change." And we've also heard the term uh, a window of clarity, right? Where it's almost like time slows down. You're able to zoom out. You're looking at your whole life from a different level of consciousness, almost a different lens. And you knew the gig was not only up, but you knew the gig was over. Is that something that's gaining traction with you? It, it is. And let me back up because one, one part of this that I left out was for about a year and a half, 2017 through January of 2019, late 2017, I also unfortunately started uh, using amphetamines and methamphetamines along with my drinking. And in January of 2019, I I stopped that and began to seek recovery. So I was sober, clean and sober, from January of 2019 through March of 2019, from everything. And then you returned to drinking in March of 2019. Exactly, yeah. And it was one of those, and I hear, you know, all the time, hey, I have two months, I'm good. It's not the drinking, it's this other thing. And... Quickly, I just, you know, it was like I got right back to where I was with, you know, drinking too much. And then the amount that I was drinking as well as morning drinking, I never thought that I would be the type of person that drank in the morning. You know, I thought that's the real sign of an alcoholic. Well, yeah, we, had eight, I ended up. we had 872 people just nod their head right there. Yeah. And it was like and it, and it wasn't necessarily that I felt like drinking. It was I felt so bad physically from the night before that I knew a little bit of alcohol. I just need to get my BAC up a little bit yeah. and I'll feel better. Yeah. And of course then the alcohol is back in you and now you want to have more. So, you know, I would, I would spend my entire weekend sometimes starting on Thursday. Uh, but most of the time on Friday, when I got home from work through Sunday evening, drinking constantly, even waking up at eight in the morning, cracking a beer. Now, Brian, there's also an unfortunate tipping point that some of us reach. I got there, and I know a lot of people are going to nod their heads here, is when we're no longer drinking to feel good, 
but we're drinking to just feel normal or drinking to not feel like shit. So yeah, I, I put that line in the sand, which they're all crossed eventually if we stick with drinking, which is I'm not drinking in the morning, but you know, logistics and pragmatism come into place and you recognize, look, if I have a drink, I'll be able to go to work. My hands won't shake. So it sounds like you reached that moment. And then fortunately it wasn't a fiery rock bottom moment, but talk to us. What was it like on September 19th, uh, day one? How did, how did you do it? So because I had those two months earlier that year and I had found a, a organization here where I, where I live, that's kind of an all pathways recovery. So, you know, there's the fellowships out there, AA and NA, this organization just basically is like all pathways, you know, progress, not perfection, so on and so forth. So I, I had already, I was already familiar with them. And so I, I started going to meetings and I'll say that September 19th, I still had a lot of shame hanging over me and I was still very concerned about my job. And in hindsight, rightfully so, because I was released in early November, but I felt very good about my decision. Like, I don't know. I guess it's finally when you when you rip the Band-Aid off, when you've just been patching it for a while and you think, OK, I'll, I'll get to I'll stop drinking after this. I'll stop drinking after that wedding. I'll stop drinking after football season. That was just a very definitive day. And I almost felt very relieved that it was over. My suffering was over and I knew that I could get better from there. And this, these last seven months have, have been so incredibly peaceful, despite me basically, you know, being unemployed and having those stresses and, and life and life stresses, right? Everything else. I mean, look, we're in the middle of a coronavirus right now where we're quarantined to our houses, huge amount of stress. Uh, but I, I still feel more at peace than I ever did when I was drinking. And I think that that has a lot to do not only with my mindset, but the lack of those depressant chemicals in my system at all times. Even if I hadn't drank for a couple of days, all those chemicals were still in my body and I had anxiety and depression and I just did not ever feel normal unless I had a couple of drinks in me. Brian, you said something spectacular that I want to comment on. So on this journey, and I, I feel in the rooms of 12 Steps too. The majority of us, we put so much emphasis on continuous sobriety time. It's either go big or bust. And you've either got this great amount of time away from alcohol or it's all for nothing. But what you said, which is spectacular, I love it. You said, because I had those two months that same year, and I'm going to go a little further because you had eight months in the nineties, you had seven months in 2004. That stuff is logged in your body. There is a neurological memory of that. There's almost a muscle memory. And if you've done it once, you can do it again. So can you comment on somebody out there that's like, you know, I just can't quit drinking, but I did get three months last year. I mean, can you comment on how that's equally as important? Yeah, well, I think that it's, it's immensely important because we can't ever quit the battle to stop. Last year, when I resumed drinking in March through September, I was probably one of the most self-aware alcoholics, at least from my perspective, because I knew, and every single time I was drinking, I kept reminding me, myself of how good I felt during those two months. And for whatever reasons, and, and everybody listening, because you know they're in recovery and they've struggled, they understand that there is no rhyme or reason why we then decide to continue down the destructive path. But I did. But there was also this like second voice and second personality that just kept reminding me that there's there's a better way. There's a better way. Remember how good you felt. Remember how much clarity you had. Remember how much peace you had. And that's that's basically why I think that on September 19th and since that time, I've just felt so at peace because I knew that I didn't need to pick up that drink and I didn't need to feel the shame and embarrassment, guilt, self-loathing, all those negative feelings that I felt towards myself for so long. I mean, we're talking, it was, I was 25 when I, when I first got that sobriety time and I'm 45, it was 20 years. It was two decades of ups and downs and disappointing myself and shame. And I don't have to experience that anymore. And I'm 45 and hopefully, you know, I'll be 85 and saying I have 40 years sobriety. We're going to need a lot of resources to depart from an addiction, but the most important thing we need is awareness. And I love, I wrote this down on my notepad. 
you're that you were one of the most self-aware alcoholics. I think that's how you said that. And yeah. with the awareness, right? So we all know those people that just continue drinking and, and it's, that's often how they, the downfall, right? And without an awareness, we're not able to go internally and separate. I love how you said that you almost were able to separate. You said there was a different voice inside the head and that's the more grounded voice, the more true, authentic voice that's recognizing the false personality, the protective personality, the ego that's saying, look, I, I recognize it's doing this, but we're no longer going to be resorting to those activities, to those those coping strategies of relying for on alcohol. And I had it too. I drank for a couple of months, knowing that it's like, all right, look, the gig, uh, we're, this is coming to an end. We're still drinking. It wasn't my sobriety date, but I love how you said with awareness that um, <laughs> you were you you knew that something was different. Um, and so, in in your first thirty days or sixty days, was there a challenge, or, or how did you get past some cravings? Yeah, I mean, even even now, and I and I presume because I hear from you know the folks that have long term sobriety, you still have those thoughts. I wouldn't say that I've had cravings per se. Um, I've had thoughts and habitual remembrances of a timing of a drink. As an example, you know, we've been quarantining our houses, and my my yard looks the best it's looked since we purchased this house in five years ago because we spent so much time. It was always, you know, after you get done cutting the grass or while you're cutting the grass, hey, crack a beer, right? And so I've had those thoughts, but I have reflected quite a bit and I have forced myself to not forget the bad and romanticize the good aspects of drinking because, you know, everybody says, well, it was fun until it wasn't. Well, that's absolutely right. I mean, you can forget all of the damage that you did and all of the horrible physical feelings and mental feelings you had. And you can think back to only one single positive moment, you know, whether it's a snapshot of you cheersing your friends in a bar. But if, like you said so many times in, in your podcast, if you play the tape forward, that one small romantic moment turns into waking up the next day, sometimes not remembering what you said, what you did how much you spent or where you're at, you know, uh, and you walk outside and, okay, my car is there. Let me walk around. Did I hit anything? You know, how, how horrible that was for me and knowing those things and being able to play the tape forward, I can take that romantic image of cheersing my friends, play it forward and go, yep, I don't, that's not the road that I want to walk down. So, and fortunately I've had a lot of tools and resources, like you said, uh, before the before the podcast, you and I were briefly talking, and you know your your podcast, and then the Cafe Re group has been instrumental and critical for my sobriety the last seven months. Simply because uh, I knew that I had to do things differently than I had done it the other three or four times that that I had gotten sober. And yeah, I would you know back in those times, I'd go to some AA meetings or this or that. But this time, I said, you know what, I'm. I'm putting more effort into it. I can't just show up. I have to play the game. I have to, they have to, I have to get into the field and start running the ball. And so that's what I did. So, you know, on September 19th, I think I was looking up TED Talks and found your TED Talk from Bozeman, Montana. Listen to it. Uh, I don't, I think maybe in there that you had introduced your podcast. So I looked up your podcast. You had then advertised the Cafe RE. I joined Cafe RE. At first, I thought, man, do I really feel like spending. I think it's, what is it, 19 bucks a month? Yeah, 19. Quickly, yeah, 19. I, quickly, I said, Brian, you spend like 500 to to $1,000 a month on alcohol. You can easily spend 19 bucks to get sober, dude. And, and that's what I was like, yep. And I've been a member ever since. And I love those folks there. I'm, I'm looking forward to being able to come to one of the, you know, the retreats, the trips, because we have in OG, which is the group that I'm in, we have a, a Marco Polo group. So I get to talk to those folks all the time. But it's over a video, right? So I've never been able to put my arms around and hug anybody and say, thank you so much for, for helping me walk down this path of sobriety. And I look forward to actually meeting you, Paul, and giving you a hug and saying, man, thanks so much. Because again, your, your podcasts and, and you introducing me to other resources. As an example, you've introduced me to so many books that I've read. I read your book, Alcohol is Shit. I've read, uh, This Naked Mind by Annie Grace. Uh, I read, uh, I've not fully done, but I'm in the process of reading uh, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts by yeah, Gabor Mate. Yeah. Uh, so, so you've introduced me to all of this quit lit, if you want to call it, other podcasts to listen to, your podcast. I mean, I just have such a toolbox of resources. And, and really, it kind of all started with you on September 19th. 
Wow. So thanks. Wow. <laughs> well, Brian, I have thoroughly enjoyed getting to know you personally in webinars. And I know when all this stuff settles down, me, you, Cafe RE members, and the other uh, members of the recovery community, we're, we're going to have such a huge embrace at one of our live events. So those live events are going to continue to go on. But Brian, I want to zoom out for a second and, and see if you can see the tremendous progress that you've made in relatively a short period of time. So early September, I think the dates were 11th through the 13th of 2019. You're giving yourself a pep talk, driving down to this corporate function at the Ritz Carlton. I mean, this is a nice event. You're like, Brian, we're not drinking. And then you're at the bar. And before you know it, you've got a drink in your hand. Okay. So then what you said recently, when I asked you questions about cravings, you were able to play the tape forward. Now, listeners, this is profound growth in a relatively short period of time, period of time, because here's what's happening. Brian, in September was fully identified with the voice inside the mind as in there was no gap. There was no space in a thought and an action in order to play the tape forward accurately. You have to distance yourself from the thoughts. A thought's going to show up. I want to take a drink and there has to be a gap. There has to be space where you can say yes, no, maybe nope, not a good thing for me, but you're, you're, you're playing the tape forward, which means you're evaluating your thoughts. You're starting to identify with the true self versus the false self, which is the protective personality or the ego. So simply the tool of playing the tape forward is profound, but underneath the foundation of being able to play the tape forward is even more profound. So do you recognize that? Like what, what I'm getting at there? Yeah, I do. Because, you know, the, over these last seven months, not only have I not drank and that's like the first step, right? But I have worked additionally on myself and tried to figure out who I was. You know, I, I said back in 2004, I was living by myself. I was uncomfortable with myself. This time I said, you know what? I, I don't need, I'm, I'm 45 years old and I have put up so many facades and worn so many masks for so long with so many different groups of people that I'm confused about who Brian Atkins even is. And for these last seven months, I've, I've turned a lot to meditation. Uh, I try to meditate every single day. And while it was very difficult at first, I've gotten into a very good rhythm and I generally meditate for about a half an hour to an hour every day. And that just helps me center myself and you know, just reading a lot of, of different things, not only Quitlet like we were reading, but, you know, books like A New Earth by, by Eckhart Tolle, uh, Untethered Soul, just trying to figure out how I can reflect on myself and get out of my ego. Because if we go back to September, when I walked up to after that meeting to that bar and ordered the double vodka and tonic, that was my ego. That was that was an ego saying to fit in with all of these folks, you need to take a drink right now. Or they're expecting you. All these people are expecting you to drink. That's who you are. You're a drinker. Take a drink. But that's my ego. That's not me. And I, I, I am appreciative. And one of my gratitude points is really my centeredness right now and the growth that I've had over seven months. So, yeah, thank you for asking me that. Yes, I, I recognize it. And I'm grateful for it. And I certainly don't take it for granted because it was not always the case. So you said, that's my ego. That's not me. And there's, you dropped another value bomb there, Brian. Sure. On our alcohol free journey, we're going to find out who we are, but almost more importantly, we discover who we are through a sequence of steps of who we aren't. And you just said, that's my ego. That's not me. Maybe comment on some other experiences where you're like, you know what? That's no longer me. I don't do that stuff anymore. Um, some of it has to do with my personal relationships, whether, um, friends, I was always, I always had a pretty big short temper or pretty short temper, I should say, and could, could fly off the handle pretty easily. And even, I mean, it's, it's terrible to say, but sometimes I was very short with my children and we get, uh, unreasonably angry, uh, about things that I should just brush off or, you know, things with my wife or even my friends. And that's not who I want to be. And that's not even who I really am because I'm, I'm a relatively stoic person and I get that from my father. He's a Vietnam veteran and he's a very stoic person. And I think that that is, look, all of our strengths can be weaknesses and all of our weaknesses can be strengths. And I think that my stoicism is a, is a strength for me. When I was drinking, it was a weakness because what it did was I felt like I was bottling up emotions instead of dealing with them and processing them. 
And then when I would get intoxicated, those emotions would come flooding out, whether that was sadness, anger, whatever it is. And I would overreact leading up to that week, that week uh, at the executive retreat several weeks before, you know, several weekends before that I had instances. I went to a local minor league ball game and got way too intoxicated, came home, uh, was kicking the door in and my wife had to call the police just to settle me down. I, and I slept in a hotel. She wouldn't come get me the next day, understandably mad. So I had to walk like eight miles back to my house, had a lot of time to think. I think a weekend before that or a weekend after that, I'm getting the sequence messed up. But her, you know, I got mad at her. I got angry. And at 1130 at night, I decided it would be a great time to drive from South Carolina to Florida to see my cousins and took alcohol in the seat next to me. And I'm driving down 95 heading to Florida. It was about six o'clock in the morning right at the Florida Georgia line that I started come kind of sobering up, if you will, and thinking, what the hell are you doing right now? So those couple of weeks combined with my with my executive retreat debacle. That's not who I am. And that's, I guess, why I've had such a peaceful experience these last seven months, even given these life stresses, that I finally have have been able to set that personality aside. You always call, I think you call your drinking personality Gary. Is that correct? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Aloysius. Uh So that's Aloysius in that trip and, and doing all those things. And I don't have to be that person anymore. And I can be a sensitive person. I can, I can, and I can show those that side of me and I don't have to blow up over small things anymore because I'm able to respond rather, rather than react. Brian, a couple things I want to comment on before we hit the rapid fire round. Number one, Florida Georgia line. Love that band. Thanks for reminding me of them. And number two, so we are recording this mid quarantine, you know, peak, peak of the quarantine season right here. Imagine how short your temper would be if you were drinking before this with kids at home, I imagine with your wife, just comment on that for a second. Uh, it would have been a complete debacle. I mean, we've been basically September. Uh, I live in South Carolina. It's a little bit later on the quarantine. So we've only been technically locked down for two weeks. That's when our governor issued that stay at home order. But for all intents and purposes, we, we were minimizing our trips to the store and a lot of places are shutting down. Had I been uh, drinking during this time frame, A, I'm also looking for a job and unemployed. I would have been incredibly depressed, giving up, you know, just losing my mind, drinking. And then with the stress of all that, plus a stress of being cooped up, I, I don't necessarily know that I, that I wouldn't have been kicked out by my wife or significantly hurt my children uh, by my anger and drinking during this time frame. So by, by the blessings of the higher power as I understand them, or her, or it. I haven't, I haven't felt the need to pick up and drink, and it has been a godsend because I've been very level-headed during all of this. Brian, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within thirty seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Let's rock it. Here we go. Light bulb moment on the journey. I never knew who I was until these last seven months. That that was. A, I knew I knew a little bit of that, but I'm really starting to to learn who I am, and I really like myself now. Beautiful. What is a memorable moment a life without alcohol has given you? Rekindling my relationship with my kids uh, during the last couple of years of it. My son and I began to drift apart and he never really wanted to hang out with me. And there was one point early on right after I quit that he had the opportunity to go and play with us with his friend next door. And he said, no, I want to hang out with daddy. And I basically cried mm-hmm. because hadn't said that and he he was seeing the changes in me and I, I love that i love him i love my kids favorite alcohol free drink i like seltzer water uh, so there's a couple different brands out there and i like experimenting with the different flavors they have there's a cranberry lime out there from polar that's pretty good and uh but i also like a kombucha every once in a while but they get expensive so those are more like a treat rather than a, a daily consumption and what is on your bucket list in an alcohol free life brian I have always wanted to get my pilot's license, and and uh, I've always thought, gosh, I can't get my pilot's license because I can't trust myself not to drink, and now I can, so I've always wanted to get my pilot's license. Listeners, can you imagine how soothing that would be if, if you're in an airplane and Brian's your captain and he comes on and does the PA announcement? Brian, can you just, can you just like try practice that for a second? Like, ladies and gentlemen, we are at our cruising altitude of... This is your captain speaking. Thank you for flying Atkins Airlines. Uh, I have the seatbelt light turned off, so feel free to roam about the cabin. But we're expecting a little bit of turbulence coming up, so uh, please uh, notice that sign when you can. 
Oh, love it. There's no way there could be turbulence with that voice. <laughs> That's fun. All right. Brian, what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners? Keep going. And even if you're out there doing field research, as you've called it, Paul, or you have some slip ups and, and you, re, you know, relapse, I, I hate that term. But if you if you go back out and, you know, and don't don't beat yourself up so much, know that every single moment is a new moment to change and, and keep walking the path. And the opposite of addiction is connection. So make sure you're reaching out to people that are in the, the recovery community because there's some wonderful people out there. And I have. I love my my new friends in the recovery community. You might need to ditch the booze if line, Brian. Going back to it, if your fraternity renames the biggest party award after you and no longer qualifies you to win it since it's guaranteed you will, you may have a drinking problem. You, you know what, Brian? I might even uh, give you the award for the best you might need to ditch the booze if line. <laughs> for that one. <laughs> after 276 of these things, that one might be my favorite, listeners. You just kept winning the award, and the fraternity's like, all right, this is a no-brainer. Who's got the Brian, the yeah, Brian Award this semester? <laughs> and I would present it to the to the person. Oh, it gets better. Oh, I love it. I love it. Do, do you like – do they that the, – do they like zoom you in for the award ceremony these days? Uh, no, actually, my fraternity is no longer on that campus. It was kicked off. I'm a, I'm a member of Sigma Phi Epsilon. Gotcha. And, uh, and Sig Epps, their charter was revoked at that college. So I went to University of Maryland, Baltimore County. That's where I'm at. Along with, I grew up with our U.S. Surgeon General, Jerome Adams. His parents live about two miles away from mine. And he went to UMBC as well. So... Uh, I know Jerome. I've known Jerome Adams, Dr. Jerome Adams, for a long time. Brian, I'm guessing you were such a legend in that fraternity that everyone wanted the Brian Award. Uh, therefore, it resulted in the downfall of the fraternity. So, good one. <laughs> nice job. It, yeah, I've uh, I've not only destroyed some parts of my life, I've destroyed other people's lives. And that's really my <laughs> <what I> resume. <laughs> oh, I love it. These are so much fun. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Great stuff. All right. Thanks so much for having me, Paul. Really appreciate it and really appreciate the community you've set up because, uh, like I said, it's been integral to my recovery these last seven months. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks for being part of it. Okay. We've got a new voice taking over for the next 52, at least the next 52 podcast episodes while I chill out, take a break, hopefully try to get a tan. I don't do that well because I don't break well. You have to actually sit in the sun to get a tan. So for this new voice, here's what I ask. There's a theme you've heard me say on this podcast several times, focus on the similarities and not the differences. I also ask you to give this new voice a chance, a couple episodes at least. I would ask you to provide the new voice with unconditional love and support like you have shown me, but that's almost a given. I, I know that's going to happen, um, but we need feedback too. You can email the new voice. You can email us and say, loved it. You, you hear some direction for upcoming episodes. This is what we'd like to hear. It's going to be a new, it's going to be a new project, right? And I do plan on dropping in every eight episodes or so. Maybe you'll see just like a quick Paul update in your, in, in your podcast media player, what I'm going to be doing. So I'll still be around. And again, follow me on the Recovery Elevator Instagram channel. One question that I asked the new host is, would they honor the mission? Number one, to shred the shame, to shatter the stigma, which we've done. And another thing I asked him or her to do is to honor where this journey takes us and to share whatever resources this new host has found beneficial, even if it's controversial or we might get some pushback. What I mean is, so in episode 170, I talk about my experience with plant medicine ayahuasca. My plan was to go down there, do ayahuasca, and to not talk about it. My plan was to try it out, come back, and think nothing more of it. However, that resource was so profound that I would be untrue to my mission. I would be inauthentic to my goal to share the most profound recovery resources with you if I didn't talk about that. And let me, let me share real quick about ayahuasca. It's been almost two years since I did it. I still feel the same about it as it is a powerful tool and it does hold a spot at the table when it comes to departing from an addiction. And I know we are going to get dates to go back down to Rhythmia again. And in the future at a recovery elevator retreat center, this is way down the road. These, these, these shamanistic treatment modalities may be part of our, our recovery facilities. So 
one, one thing I want to share with you in episode 170, I talk about how howler monkeys came to came to save my life and that's that's what I think what happened or came to assist me on my journey. Now it was so clear in my mind what happened, but there was also another voice saying, "Look, Paul, it was you were on the world's most powerful hallucinogenic ayahuasca and and did it really happen?" But I went back to Rhythmia in January of 2019 and I saw the same shaman who was with me for a couple hours that evening. And I said, "Hey, Brad, do you remember me?" He goes, "Yeah, of course I do." I said, okay, Brad, I just want to get your take on things. Now, I got to a moment in my journey where I was about to end my life as well as restart the universe from a stance of love saying, we have deviated from the course where uh, humanity needs to be. And I was about to reset the universe. I felt like I was going to die. And then monkeys came to, came to help me. Did that really happen, Brad? I mean, there's no way that happened, right? And Brad, he takes a moment and, and this is probably where at like one o'clock in the morning after one of the ceremonies arrhythmia, he looks at me and he goes, Paul, I've been a shaman for over 12 years. I've practiced plant medicine in Africa and the jungles of Colombia and the jungles of Peru. And now I'm in Costa Rica as a shaman. So I've been doing this for a long time and I've seen, I've seen some crazy things. What I saw that night with you and the monkeys was by far the wildest thing that I've ever seen as a shaman. And if you've done an ayahuasca retreat, you're going to see some crazy things. And just imagine that being your career for 12 years, the amount of things that you've seen. So he said this was the wildest thing he's ever seen. And, but he wasn't surprised either at what happened. What he said, he said, Paul, this was the first time in my career as a shaman where my powers as a shaman, I wasn't able to take you out of your, of your journey. You needed help. You needed a lot of help, in fact. And nature showed up in the format of monkeys, howler monkeys, about eight of them, into the compound of Rhythmia. They showed up to help you. That's what happened. You needed further assistance that myself, the other shaman, and the hotel staff weren't able to provide at that moment, and you were supported. You were, you were guided on your journey by real monkeys. And guys, these aren't, these aren't hallucinogenic monkeys. These were eight monkeys. In fact, these howler monkeys are the loudest animal on the planet. So just imagine that for a second. I was there at a moment where I was ready to depart from this planet, and I was about to push a button, and right when I hit that button, eight howler monkeys started chiming in unison. Now, this was loud as you can imagine. It kicked me out of that. I came back. I said, whoa, what the hell was that? There were monkeys. And then I said, you know what? Nope, I need to go back, and I need to finish this mission. I need to make my transition away from this planet. I was about to hit the button again. Right then, eight of the loudest animals on the planet started chirping or howling in unison, and it kicked me out again. After about two or three or four times doing this, I recognized what was happening. And I said, holy shit, I think my thoughts or what I'm about to do in my mind are, are correlating with the monkey's choruses. So in my mind, I tested this theory. I went up to the button. I was about to push it. But I wasn't planning on pushing it, and there we go. The monkeys went again. I did this a couple more times before verbalizing it with Brad. I said, Brad, I'm going to make the monkeys go up in three, two, and there we go. And 80 people at the ayahuasca retreat facility were also hearing these, these monkeys. They're, I mean, they're, they were like 30 or 40 yards away in a nearby tree inside, I believe, inside the facility. And so I still get emails and text messages to this day of people saying that night with the monkeys where I was communicating with them, with my thoughts, with my energetic connection, that we're all connected. People still reach out and say that was the wildest, most life-changing event they've ever been a part of. So I actually wasn't planning on sharing this part um, at the end of, of my episode here. I wasn't planning on doing this, but since my time is limited on this podcast, I thought I, I thought I needed to share it with you guys. Cause it was still the most profound moment of my journey that we are all connected. We are all part of the same fabric of energy and addictions take hold when we disconnect from this blanket of energy that we are all part of. So recovery elevator, my time with you guys is winding down in this medium format. It has been such a pleasure sharing my journey with you as you have shared and opened up your journey with me. I've got one more intro left before we depart. I almost don't want to hit stop 
and I'm, I'm starting to tear up. It's been a journey. It's been the best journey I've ever been on. And I have a feeling, guys, this is just the beginning. So recovery elevator. You took the elevator down. You got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. I love you guys. Thank you.